Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Good to see you guys. Hey, hey. hey Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will talk real estate investing with our man, Matt Argusinger. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with a potential acquisition and an unlikely partnership. Shares of Walmart rose 6% this week and hit a new all-time high on Friday after the retail giant confirmed it is teaming up with Microsoft in a bid for TikTok, the wildly popular Chinese social media app. TikTok is close to selling its operations in the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand in a deal expected to be in the range of 20 to 30 billion dollars. Andy, this is moving pretty quickly, so it's quite possible by the time people are listening to this, yeah. the deal is already done. But when I first saw this news, it didn't make any sense to me why Walmart would get involved here. Yeah, I think that probably was a little bit of a shock uh, to to many people. But the more I thought about it, it kind of makes a little sense, Chris. So just think about what Doug McMillan, the CEO at Walmart, has been doing in their e-commerce business, um, trying to have so much success, even before the COVID-19 lockdowns. And having that success, partnering with, for example, the likes of Shopify, they announced earlier on. I mean, Walmart has a very large e-commerce presence. One of the larger sites out there. Their e-commerce business is going gangbusters right now. Um, they generate a lot of uh, of profits and cash, as does Microsoft. And so I think when Walmart is looking to expand their audience, maybe continue to compete with Amazon when it comes to third-party sellers. They have 450,000 third-party sellers. Walmart does. That's a fraction of what Amazon does. So. So again, to expand its reach, reach a different audience. TikTok may not be so much of a stretch, depending on what price they can get. Now, there's there's big numbers being tossed out of thirty billion or so, but that's um, I, I'd be surprised if, if TikTok, TikTok can get that. But I see it as a way for Walmart to really expand into a different audience, expand its advertising business, and build out its e-commerce platform in a way that it hasn't. It, it would be very tough to do on its own. Jason, if you're a Microsoft shareholder, are you? Would you rather see Microsoft go all in on this, or do you like the idea that a company like Walmart is helping to spread the risk around because they're going to pay for part of it? Um, I mean, I would rather see Microsoft just take this on its own. I mean, I think the bigger risk probably um, is on Walmart's side, just given what the business does, given given you know the history of the business, kind of how it. It built itself up to this point in physical retail. So, uh, I, you know, personally, I'd rather see one party as opposed to many, but um, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. it. It does seem like an odd combo, but, you know, from TikTok's perspective, I mean, you, re you have to figure they, TikTok, are trying to figure out how to be more than just an ad play, right? Um, what we know about the business today, it's very little. Uh, we know they have a big network of people that use the platform. And we know they don't make a heck of a lot of money, and it's essentially just you know an advertising play, and, um, and and that's a very tough space 
with plenty of incumbents that do really well already. But if you're not Facebook or Alphabet, then you're just part of this sort of collective of mediocre businesses that are taking a little bit of, of what is a very big uh, pie there. I mean, Twitter, it's just kind of a mediocre business. Snap, it's just kind of a mediocre business. And, and TikTok faces that same uh, fate if they don't figure out how to become more than just an ad play. So, so you've seen Facebook with Instagram trying to get into social commerce. Twitter's made some bets here and there with that, uh, with that as well as has Snap. Uh, so, it's understandable that um, Walmart would view TikTok from that perspective and that TikTok would be looking to do that. Um, it's just going to be a very interesting situation if it is a consortium that ends up acquiring TikTok, because you have more people trying to determine, or more companies trying to determine the fate, uh, which typically can be a more difficult thing. And a lot of speculation of what Walmart might do with this, but you got to like the fact that Doug McMillan is keeping his cards pretty close to the vest. He's not really saying how they're going to use it. He's not saying whether it's going to be part of the Walmart Plus service that they're going to roll out later this year. Yeah, not surprising just the quality of management that Doug has been able to showcase and just the, the, the type of leader he is. It will be very interesting on the pricing perspective, how much they want to pay um, if if it, the deal does go through. There just aren't very many platforms out there. I think there are reportedly 800 million users of TikTok, and they're, I imagine they're very active. They're, they probably skew young. There aren't many platforms out there. So, when you look at the asset base, this is one that, that, that I think Walmart is one of the larger companies out there in the world is saying, listen, this is a place where we can maybe have some immediate impact in there to uh, to continue our our transformation into a much more of a larger of a digital company. Shares of Salesforce.com up 30% this week after second quarter profits came in more than double what Wall Street was expecting. And for a company of this size, Jason, their revenue growth continues to really impress. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we say the same thing with companies like Amazon. Um, you're out there lobbing up 20, 30, 35% revenue growth on a quarterly basis at, at that size. It's just a phenomenal thing. And uh, you know, with, with Salesforce, I mean, we, we say a lot, winners tend to keep on winning. And Salesforce has, has been a winner for a long time. It seems like they're taking the business to the next level, to be honest. Uh, this most recent quarter, this is their first $5 billion revenue quarter, their highest operating margin ever. Uh, we're clearly starting to see that the Tableau acquisition is proving to be a wise one in a data-driven world. Uh, the the Work.com platform that they built so quickly in response to the pandemic is ultimately delivering what, what Mark Benioff called this workforce command center that so many businesses need. They're helping companies all over the world really adjust what is, is a new way of doing business going forward. Um, but a 63% increase in seven-figure deals from a year ago, big wins with companies like AT&T and PayPal, among others. Uh, in, in, a, in a world of no guidance, Salesforce not only gives it, but they raise it. So, now they're looking for about $20.8 billion in revenue for the full year. $3.73 in earnings per share. That puts shares today at a very modest, Chris, a very modest 72 times full-year estimates. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But you know that old saying, you get what you pay for. And when you buy shares of a business like Salesforce and a leader like Mark Benioff, uh, you are really buying into high quality that you can hang on to for a long time. So, big fan of this business and just not surprised at all, but, but very impressed with the results from the quarter. Workday is a software as a service company that helps businesses with HR and finance. Shares up 25% this week after a great second quarter report. They also raised revenue guidance. 
Andy, I know we talk about the cloud a lot, but I feel like businesses like Workday are one of the reasons why. Yeah, Chris, I mean, same as Salesforce, another really impressive quarter from Workday. It's a $51 billion market cap company, so it's quite large. Revenues were up about 20%. Their subscription business uh, to their to their cloud services was up more than that, up 23%, is now 88% of the total sales, with the other part being more professional services. They saw strong renewals um, across their, their, their product line, the subscription revenue backlog, which is what they expect to, to bring in, in the for, uh, going forward, was up 22%. With two thirds of that now uh, at the uh, expected to be brought in over the next year, and that was up 21%. Gross retention of 95%. When you look at the net retention numbers, up more than 100%. If you include up sales into higher margin and higher priced um, um, offerings, they continue to expand their suite of human capital management and finance solutions um, to help very large clients. I think they have 60% of the Fortune 50, so it's a really big enterprise business. But their workforce, Chris, was down a little bit from the first quarter, so they really did a good job maintaining cost, and and their subscription business is looking to be growing at um, 20 to 21% going forward. So, very much like Salesforce, Workday is really providing services in a very complex market when so many companies are out there trying to take care of their employees, um, treat their, uh, their, their employees as best they can with all different kinds of, of solutions, and then help, the, of course, the, the, the complicated world of, of finance and budgeting and processing in that world across large enterprises. Workday is really thriving there. Interesting, Chris, they are now going to a co-CEO model, um, Anil Bousri, who was as one of the co-founders, um, is is going to get a partner in Chano Fernandez, who's been there um, for a few years. Uh, this is a little bit different. Uh, Salesforce actually tried this. Benioff tried this. It didn't quite work out. Um, but now, uh, Workday is seeing this as a way to split the CEO responsibilities up more effectively going forward. I'm glad you mentioned that, because that caught my attention. I, once you get past the great numbers for Workday, the move to the co-CEO model, I, it seems like that works less often than it fails. Yeah, it's, um, we're, we're starting to see a little bit more, Chris. It's interesting. So, Neil is going to focus, again, he's a co-founder um, of the business. He's going to focus really on product, technology, and corporate. So, that's like HR and finance, things he really cares about. He said he's excited to get back into strategy and product. And then, Channel will oversee the um, more of the sales and marketing and customer relationship. Again, you know, you're talking about very large clients. Those are in businesses. Those are very complex operations. And going forward, I think they're seeing a way to transition the responsibilities of the CEO and maybe even build for the future by um, bringing Chano into the into the CEO role. Coming up, we've got some online sales numbers you may not believe, and a limited time offer we may not be able to resist. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Shares of Okta hit an all-time high this week, but came down a bit from that peak on Friday after its second quarter report came out. Okta is in the business of identity management software. I don't know, Andy. I mean, the profits look good. They raised revenue guidance. This seems a little bit like nitpicking to sell off this stock. Yeah, I think, well, the stock has done so well and it now sells at um, 38 times sales. So these high price stocks, um, even as, as 
well as they have been performing, I think there's the, if you don't continue to really outperform, the stocks tend to get hit a little bit. Revenues were up 43%, cross over the $200 million mark. Subscriptions revenues were up 44%. Most of their business is subscription-driven. Um, the, the, the performance obligations, so what they, again, expect to bring in over the next few years um, was up 48% or up 56%, and then just over this year was up 48%. So, again, looking forward, what they expect to bring in from their clients continue to be very high um, growth in there. Um, their gross margins were up a little bit. The subscription gross margin was up a tiny bit. Um, Non-GAAP operating income uh, was $6.5 million. That was 3.2% of revenues versus a loss uh, a year ago, Chris. So, from the profit perspective, from the guidance perspective, all looking pretty good. I think on that last point, the guidance is what might have people a little bit concerned. And Ted McKinnon, who is one of the co-founders of Okta, talked about this as well, too. Seeing they are seeing some challenges from the COVID-19 um, pandemics uh, in some of their small and medium-sized business. Okta does serve a lot of large clients um, when it comes to um, identity management, but for small business, they are seeing some challenges there. So they're expecting for the third quarter revenue to be up 32 or 33%. So again, a little bit of a deceleration from this quarter. I think that has some some concerns, seeing some larger, longer sales cycles in their clients. So some challenges there. Uh, and with a with a high price multiple stock like Okta, again, if you don't continually to really um, express the very positive results, I think the stock uh, will sell off in a given day. Shares of Best Buy also hitting an all-time high this week. Second quarter online sales grew 240%. And yes, Jason, profits were also higher than expected. But online sales grew 240%. <laughs> yeah, that that was um, that, that's a lot. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, I think a silver lining for a lot of businesses in, during this pandemic is it, it has given them the chance to redefine themselves and to prove their metal and what is a what is a new world going forward. I mean, a lot of businesses are really going to have to change. Um, the way they do things, and I, and I don't know that it's going to ever really go back. And, and that's probably a good thing in a lot of ways. And Best Buy is certainly uh, taking advantage of it, and I, and I think the market has rewarded it for really, uh, you know, continuing to just consistently return some pretty impressive numbers in a difficult space. And and, and I think you, you you know made you made a very good point there in regard to the to the two hundred forty percent online. Revenue growth um, as a percentage of total domestic revenue, online revenue increased to 53% of total revenue versus 16% last year. So again, you can see uh, just tremendous growth there. And you know, just to, just to cap it all off, their domestic online sales have continued uh, to to uh, really impress. In in quarter three, they're up approximately 175% right now. So uh, just really impressive numbers. And I think a lot of this just goes back to um, in some interesting perspective that CEO Corey Sue Barry. Uh, noted on the call, three concepts they believe that are permanent and structural implications uh, from this pandemic in regard to the business environment, the retail environment, the customer shopping behavior will be permanently changed in a way it just has to be more digital and put customers entirely in control to shop how they want, when they want, where they want. Uh, two, the workforce needs to evolve in a way that meets the needs of those customers while, while being more flexible. Uh, not only for the customers, but for for the workforce, and then three technology just continues to play an even more crucial role. Um, and I think they're following those three 
um, ideas in, in helping to steer this business uh, forward, and, it, and it's working. Um, so, for a business that we really, a lot of us probably wrote off just, just a few years back, I mean, the numbers, the numbers don't lie, really. They, they've continued to impress, and um, it, it looks like they're going to make it through this okay, and, and that omni-channel retail experience is, uh, is, is paying off for Best Buy. Second quarter same-store sales for Ulta Beauty fell more than 25%, but online sales helped make up for that, and shares of Ulta Beauty up 12% this week, Andy. Yeah, the online business was up 200%, so similar to what we saw with, with Best Buy. Um, transactions uh, up from the comp sale, so comparable source co- transactions down 36%, not a surprise, and average ticket was up about 15%. They are seeing the trend improving throughout the quarter. Um, a lot of omni-channel benefits um, as they continue to see more and more consumers use the the benefits of online and omni-channel um, programming. Um, there's still some struggles. They're still very cautious about the rest of the year especially in the fourth quarter, that they think will be a little bit struggle when it comes to the holiday sales and some of the concerns still around pandemic. But but obviously, um, it was a nice little bit of a rebound now, where we're seeing from Alta a little bit of momentum improving um, from where they were uh, a year, uh, a quarter ago when all the stores were closed. Chicken McNuggets were introduced in 1983, and for the first time ever, they're getting a little spicy. McDonald's announced it plans to start selling spicy chicken McNuggets in mid-September. It is one of two new limited-time offer menu items, along with a Chips Ahoy McFlurry. I got to be honest, guys, it has been years, years since I have gone to McDonald's for anything other than the occasional breakfast item or coffee. I think this might change that for me. I think I might have to hit the drive-thru. Does it really change that, or are you just trying to be nice? I mean, I, no. I thought about this. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm with you in that. Like, listen, Jason likes chicken spicy. Don't get me wrong. But uh, number one, what took McDonald's so long? I mean, this is amazing to me. Like, it, ch- spicy chicken isn't something new. Um, but then, second of all, I, I don't. Man, McNuggets are still McNuggets. Like at the end of the day, they're still McNuggets, and I don't mean that in a good way. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of other options out there. Some great options. Some wonderful options. It, it, and I just don't know that McDonald's is really um, bringing me through the drive-through for this particular offering. Now, with that said, I'm glad they did it. Man, better late than never. But I'm just surprised it took this long. I don't know that spicy nuggets combined with the McFlurry, the Chips Ahoy McFlurry, which I did not read about. But that's actually a combination. If I was a if I was a more of a chicken eater, I think that too that the pairing of those two would get me into the drive-through. And on a slightly more serious note. <laughs> This actually, I think, is a good sign for the restaurant industry. The fact that McDonald's is rolling out new menu items. We've been hearing for months about how new items have been on hold for McDonald's and others. So um, I, I think we're going to see more restaurants rolling out more new mm-hmm. things. Oh, yeah. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you later in the show. Up next, we're going to get Matt Argusinger's take on the real estate industry, as well as some investing ideas to go along with it. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. One night Farmer Brown was taking a hand. He locked up the barnyard with the graves of can. Out in the hen house up and stood. When he hollered, who's that? This is what he heard. Ain't nobody here but us chickens. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Among the major industries affected by the pandemic is commercial real estate. Here to help us make sense of it all is Matt Argusinger. He's the lead advisor of Million Acres, the Motley Fool's real estate investing service. Matty, good to see you. 
Yeah, good to see you, Chris. Good to hear you. It's been it's been a while. It's been too long. Um, let's go big picture. What is the state of commercial real estate right now in your mind? Good question. If I if I was giving the state of the union speech, I would say it's not strong. It's probably a little uncertain, probably tepid. I think real estate among of, of any sector really has been the most acutely affected by the pandemic, beyond, of course, the human toll and, and, and the healthcare crisis that we're facing, of course, as well. But, but real estate, if we're thinking about asset classes, I, I just can't think of one that's been more affected given the, you know, the lockdowns, the people working from home. I mean, there are just so many things that have happened that uh, have made so many industries within real estate. If you think about retail, for sure, hospitality, for sure. And I know we're going to talk about office and all the dynamics there of people working from home and what does that mean for the future of office. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've studied real estate for a lot of years, and I feel like 2020 <laughs> has, has changed so many assumptions and so many other things I used to think about real estate and how I used to approach the market. And it, it seems like it's changing day by day. Yeah, in terms of the office buildings, I mean, I, it seems like everyone, and I'll include myself in in the category of everyone, everyone has at least a friend who works in a big office building in a big city, and they've been told or they're hearing that they're going to be exiting that building altogether. I know I've got friends who work in downtown Manhattan, or were, and now they're they're probably <laughs> not going to be. How dire is it for sort of those that category? The, I'm talking about the big cities, the 20, 30, 50 story office buildings. Um, are, are are the dire predictions overblown, or is dire a reasonable way to think about at least that category? Well, I think you nailed it on the head when you kind of made it really specific to 10, 30, 40 story plus office buildings, skyscrapers, in really say, tier one markets like New York City, San Francisco, Chicago. What is the future like for those kinds of offices? Um, I, think, I, think, I think you could use the word dire in certain circumstances. If I, if I stand, if I, first, if I look back, though, I look at traditional office, right? I think there's probably a lot of big, noisy headlines right now. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll read one survey. It might come from a home builder who says, oh, everyone's going to work from home. We're building big houses where everyone wants a home office. That's, that's the new normal. And you'll, and you'll read another research piece that says, actually, no, it's, it's really maybe 10 to 15% of employees that are going to work from home. Corporations think that their employees are generally more productive at the office. I know personally, anecdotally, I miss the office a lot. I think you do as well. There's certainly a dynamic there that's that's missing, and I think I think majority of people are going to go back to work to the office in some capacity, and very few are going to work from home full time. But what does that mean for all kinds of office? So I think for something like a suburban office building or satellite offices around certain markets, I think those office offices are actually kind of intriguing, right? I think that's that might be the wave of the future, people going to a closer-to-home type of office in a more of a co-sharing location uh, on a part-time basis. But exactly what you said earlier, what does that mean for the traditional office building in New York City or elsewhere where you, know, you had employees commute in, oftentimes over an hour to get to that, that building, and all the costs associated with those buildings, which are you know, very expensive to lease, I think there is going to be a lot of displacement. 
I, I think we probably overbuilt in a lot of places. Um, New York City, which we, we, you mentioned, I mean, if you think about the sheer number of, of large financial institutions and banks, many of them have already said, hey, I think we're good. I think we're actually good. Like JP Morgan's come out, Morgan Stanley's come out and said, we're actually good with a lot of our employees, or at least a decent percentage of our employees, working outside the office. And so I, I think there's going to be a big transition in, in sort of core markets like New York and San Francisco, where there was this use of this office dynamic where people would commute in, and, and that, that's going to change. Um, I think there's going to be a way to reuse those spaces, but in the short term, lots of pain for a lot of those landlords. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we talked about the future of malls, and in particular, the reports of a deal between Amazon and Simon Property Group, largest mall operator in America. Not a lot of comments from either one of those companies uh, in the intervening two weeks, but do you think a deal where Simon Property essentially grants space to Amazon in what used to be Sears and JCPenney, does, does that make sense for both of those companies? Does it make sense for one more than the other? Certainly, I think it makes sense for Amazon. I think it's actually easy to think about. If you think about a, a mall, and specifically a department store within a mall, big space, columns are wide apart, windowless, high ceilings, you know, easy to kind of come in, you know, re renovate, install new utilities. Um, and, and by the way, a lot of these big department stores actually own the property. The mall actually doesn't own that the anchor store in a lot of cases. And so, if you think about it, a lot of these. Retailers, you mentioned a few of them, but like the Nordstroms of the world, Macy's, Sears of the world, for sure, they're just looking to exit as fast as they can. So if Amazon's the the, the highest or lowest bidder, doesn't matter. If Amazon's going to come in, it, it looks pretty compelling to kind of kind of do that. And with Am and if you think about a location for that, malls are generally located near high density populations. So for a fulfillment center, the sort of the last mile fulfillment center that Amazon's looking for, perfect. For Simon, it's a lot more complicated, and um, I'm afraid. I, you know, I, I kind of I have mixed feelings about it myself. I think if you think about why malls exist in the first place, it's always been to draw traffic to anchor tenants like a Nordstrom's or, or Macy's, right? So you acquire these anchor tenants on cheap long-term leases, and then you have a bunch of inline tenants, the smaller tenants who who thrive on the traffic that goes to those big stores. That's how a mall. Really worked, and a lot of these tenants, um, smaller tenants, have co-tenancy clauses. Which so, if an anchor store leaves um, or changes in, in a dramatic way, they can actually leave or break their lease, um, or at least get a, a reduction in rent. So, for Simon, it's a huge risk, right? I see Amazon as a great long-term tenant, but if I do that, am I sacrificing the rest of my mall and making it much more difficult for my smaller tenants? That's that's where I'm. I'm I'm a little concerned about what Simon can do in this case because, in a lot of cases, it's really intriguing to work with a, an Amazon or a FedEx or some other or a data center like we've seen in a lot of places. But what does that do to the rest of the mall? Does it undervalue the rest of the mall? I guess outside the food court, which still could be there, right? Because you're still serving maybe everyone who works at the Amazon fulfillment center. But all the other retail tenants, they're certainly distressed even more, um, and they just certainly don't want Amazon a few stores down from them if they're oftentimes selling the same things that Amazon is trying to fulfill to all their online customers. And so, I'd say for Simon, it's it's a little more complicated. It's probably on a market-to-market basis as to where it works and where it doesn't. Well, and also complicating things for Simon Property Group uh, are these bids that they've been making for troubled retailers: uh, Brooks Brothers, Lucky Brand Jeans, J.C. Penney. 
I'm trying to wrap my head around. On the one hand, they're looking to buy JCPenney. On the other hand, they're looking to have JCPenney vacate space so they can give it up for Amazon. Does the acquisition strategy make sense to you? I think in, in a lot of cases, it's a brand play. So Simon's coming in and saying, there's value to a Brooks Brothers, there's value to even a JCPenney, a Forever 21, there's value to those brands. And if I can find a way to reposition them, either in an online capacity or in certain markets where I know it's going to work, in new developments I'm doing where maybe I'm doing a mixed-use development where my mall is turning into a you know an apartment complex with some stores and some experience activities and things like that. And there's room to, to have those brands there um, where they're going to be have, you know, they're going to have a lot of traffic. So I think to, to me, it's a branding and repositioning play. And if Simon can come in and, and, and pay cents on the dollar for a lot of these troubled retailers and apparel companies, there might be, there might be some value that can be created there. But it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting strategy. And a lot of the, I think a lot of those cases, those purchases aren't going to work out. Some will. You mentioned uh, home builders coming out and saying, uh, we're building bigger homes. People are looking for offices where they can work or do them Zoom meetings or whatever. What about apartments and condos? Doesn't that same type of thinking apply? I'm, I'm just curious if more people are going to be working remotely. Won't they also need, if, if they're not homeowners, but could we be looking at a next generation of apartment and condo building that actually provides a lot more uh, square footage? I think the case can be made for that. I think ultimately a lot of people are still going to live in cities or in places where there's Especially younger people, where there's interesting things to do, there's there's uh, you know there's entertainment, or there's restaurants, or there's just a, an ecosystem there that they they like to be close to and live in. So, I think there's the apartment situation is not as bad as it may seem. But I, what I do think it, it is happening is you're going to see the rise of yeah you know home buyers to a certain extent, but also what's called single family rentals. Just speaking from a real recent experience in over a million acres, we recently recommended a commercial real estate opportunity that was a built, you know, build to rent kind of uh, build to rent single family housing development. So, in other words, the developer was coming in. Um, this was outside of Huntsville, Alabama, and, and building a bunch of houses. I mean, it looks like a you might like a suburban housing division, but they're all subdivision, but they're all rental houses. And the idea there was, well, people want more space. They don't want any shared walls. They want their own HVAC system. They don't want to share ducts with other apartment units. And again, in a post-COVID world, probably more desirable, right? And so that I think could be a little bit of the future of how people thinking about rentals or apartments. It's it's more of a, yeah, can I get more space? Can I get separation? Um, can I have even my own small yard that I can work with? Um, if I have children, it, it, that's that's a that's a huge benefit. So um, again, it'll change. I don't see a lot of damage to the quote, multifamily sector as much as others seem. I think the apartment's going to hold up pretty well. There's going to be some movement for sure, but it not as, not as, certainly not in the dire situation we see with retail hospitality or, or, of course, office like we talked about. Earlier this year, you and I were talking about REITs, and there are obviously different categories of REITs. And one that you talked about that piqued my interest was REITs that are focused on warehouses. Are those a growth area right now within the REIT industry? Oh, they've been. They've certainly been a growth area, and and if anything, the pandemic has accelerated. I think the demand for warehouse fulfillment distribution properties, and so you know, Stag Industrial is one we talked about uh, a while. You know, on the smaller side, or you've got Prologis, which is one of the big major warehouse owners 
in the country. Uh, East Group Properties is another one. But these are all uh, these are all REITs that I think are are you know were in the right place and now really are in the right place uh, in the real estate market. Industrial has really seen no drop off. In fact, if I looked at I was looking at Stag's uh, tenant role the other day, and they've they've gotten something like ninety seven percent of rent collections over the past. Uh, in the past quarter, you know, whereas you look at several office, I mean, we talked about New York City office, Empire State Realty, they've collected only 60% of their rent um, over the last few months. So it's it's a completely contrast, right? Where uh, industrial has seen virtually no drop off in, in their business, real estate business, where other sectors have. And so, but I think this is only something that is going to accelerate. Um, you know, when you think about warehousing, but also the 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 rise of uh, you know cold storage and things like that, refrigeration. People are getting more comfortable buying fresh produce online and having it delivered, and they want it delivered, you know, in a day or two. That's going to require a lot of more infrastructure, and so industrial REITs are kind of right in the epicenter of that. If you want to read more from Matt Argusinger and his team, just go to MillionAcres.com. Matty, always good talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Mother's tired, she needs a rest. The kids are playing up downstairs. Sister's sighing in her sleep. Brother's got a date to keep you cottoning around. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Great conversation with Matt Argusinger. Always love talking to Matty. And it reminded me of the show we did early February 2019, right after Matt and his lovely wife welcomed their baby boy into the world. And we put together a special Stocks on Our Radar. It was essentially the Baby Argusinger basket of stocks. You can go back and listen to it, February 1st, 2019. I went back and ran the numbers, guys. That basket of stocks is crushing the market. <laughs> the market, uh, S&P 500, up 29% in the you know roughly 18 months uh, since we did that show. The baby Argusinger basket of stocks up more than 80%. Ron Gross went with Carter's. Uh, Jason, you went with Square. Andy, you recommended the Trade Desk. Steve Broido, our man behind the glass, I think uh, to make fun of Ron Gross, uh, picked Titan International, <laughs> the tire maker. Uh, a legendary quote from Steve Broido I have seen the future and it is round. Uh, but then Steve also got to double down on one of the other stocks. So he doubled down on so, so Carter's two uh, bites of the apple of Square, the trade desk, Titan International. That basket is crushing it. Awesome. Nice. Different like this year. That's why we love the basket approach. That's right. Um, all right. Enough of that basket. Uh, enough of those radar stocks. Let's get, let's get to this week's stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Uh, Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, Chris, as you know, this week we brought a new member of the family home, a new little golden retriever puppy. And in honor of little Ryder this week, 
I am putting Chewy on my radar, ticker C-H-W-Y. You know I love the pet market. It's just a massive opportunity, plenty of tailwinds as more and more people uh, are taking to having pets. Uh, last quarter, they reported their first quarter net sales were up 46% from a year ago to $1.62 billion. They added 1.6 million net active customers in the quarter. Ended the quarter with 15 million active customers. That was up 3.7 million from the year ago. Uh, auto ship customers. I'm I'm a I'm an auto ship customer now, Chris. Too. Let me just throw that in there. Auto ship customers now represent 68% of total net sales. They launched a new fulfillment center in Charlotte to help get things to customers more quickly. Customer acquisition costs are coming down. Margins are going up. Uh, to me, it was interesting. At the end of the fourth quarter last year, they weren't offering full-year guidance. Now they are. Uh, earnings coming up here September 10th. I'll be very fascinated to see how they uh, how they are doing. But as as a happy customer uh, that really just switched my pet shopping behavior over from Amazon to Chewy, uh, this is one that I'm really keeping a close eye on. Dan, question about Chewy? Absolutely, Chris. I am also a big fan of Chewy. I am getting an auto ship package of cat food today. Nice. Very excited about that. Uh, Jason, what are you looking for uh, for them to come out with for innovations or just good performance? What areas of their business are you looking for for them to really take over the pet food market? You know, I don't know if it's really pet food so much, but if they could come up with some kind of like Roomba device that would just automatically go clean up the little puddles that Ryder leaves around the house, that would be pretty sweet. <laughs> I think we're good on the food. Just get me the pee cleaner upper and we'll be fine. Wow. Andy Cross, a uh, tough act to follow. What are you looking Dan, at this week? I'm looking at Medallia, MDLA, a $4.9 billion company that provides customer experience uh insights and intelligence by collecting all kinds of data points like from social media and call centers, in-store experiences, online chats, product reviews, bundles it all together in a cloud solution, provides it to more than uh, 1,000 of the most popular brands in the world. They collect 6 billion of these experiences each year, and they their AI technology and algorithms can run 8 trillion calculations per day. They report earnings next week, so I'm really looking to see how their clients are reacting to this environment. Are they continuing to expand their relationships and add on more higher margin services for, for Medallia? So, MDLA, a technology company, specializes in customer service insights. Dan, question about Medallia? Yeah, sure. When I hear about this company, I only think of one thing, and that thing is, of course, Skynet from the uh, Terminator films. This company scares me. Uh, Andy, how evil is Medallia? I, it's it's not not quite as evil as Skynet. In fact, not evil at all. It is founder-run. They own some stock, um, and it's a it's a neat business to be able to provide those kinds of insights because so many customers and they have lots of plugins with Workday and Salesforce, ServiceNow, lots of different ways to be able to provide those uh, client interactions, insights that customers really need as more and more people are turning to digital solutions. Dan, do I even need to ask? Uh, you know what, Chris? I'm glad that you did, anyways. Uh, I'm 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 going with Chewy because uh, I I prefer pets over you know AI controlled digital solutions that will take over our lives in sometime in the near future. Pets are greater than evil. Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, thanks for being here. Thank thanks, Alice. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.